As we continue worship in the sanctuary, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 1 through 10. Uh, 1 Timothy 4 is a little bit later in the New Testament. There's two, there's 1st and 2nd Timothy, so it gives you a little bit of a range to find it. 1st Timothy comes first. Um, so right after 1st Thessalonians and 2nd Thessalonians, you'll find 1st Timothy chapter 4. And this will continue our series of what we've just been calling How to Lent. As often is the case, we, we come to Lent and we start to talk about spiritual disciplines and uh, fasting and other practices, and at that point, Lent has already started, so maybe we hear some things, we think that's a great idea for next year. Even though it might not be too late to start, we feel like we're in the middle of it. So this year, what we wanted to do uh, was spend some time focusing on how do we prepare well for this season? How might we practice Lent as disciples of Jesus Christ, seeking greater faithfulness and maturity in our relationship with the Lord? And so today, we'll be turning our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, which was written as, as a very personal letter from the Apostle Paul to someone who he had mentored, um, young Timothy. And maybe one thing just to, to hold up um, as we go into, we, we're hearing some of the same words we've discussed in previous weeks. You'll see the hypocritical liars, um, which we know from a few weeks ago is the word for actor, someone who's pretending to be something and is something else. And also, depending on your translation, in verse 6, you will hear the words, you will be a good either minister or servant. Um, take your pick. The word is diaconus, which is where we get our word for deacon. It's where we get the word for servant. And in this case, it's talking to Timothy on how he ministers well to those around him. So as you think about Lent and also how your life and actions affect others, how do we minister to the world? Let's turn our attention to 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 10 and ask God's blessing upon the reading of the word this day. Will you pray with me? God, we come to you, and we ask that you speak into our lives. Speak into the areas that we maybe fall short of paying attention to you. Help us to hear in your word by the power of your, your Holy Spirit perhaps some of the subtle things in our lives that affect us, our words and our actions. Help us to think about what's worth sacrificing for you. How do we train well to be your disciples in this earth? Lord, as you dwell with us by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you bless the words that are spoken, the words that are heard, and the ways in which you are at work in our lives, in the word and in the world. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. 
have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As the Apostle Paul tends to do, he covers a lot of territory in a few verses, and a pretty wide expanse is given. Everything from myths and old wives' tales, harmless, innocuous things, all the way to uh, knowledge and and perceived wisdom that is offered through uh, deceiving spirits or demons. There's a pretty wide expanse between those two, yes? You might consider um, myths and old wives' tales, some of just the silly, innocuous things that we do. Um, This was new to me a few years ago. How many of you have heard that if you flush ice cubes down the toilet, it's supposed to snow more? I know that this is a thing because people post about it, and, uh, and it's supposed to kind of be like the ritual to get a snow day. Now, there is no effect whatsoever on flushing ice cubes down the toilet. It just isn't. But you might think it works because if you've been doing that, you've been getting snow days. Hence, myths and old wives' tales are born. Innocuous things, silly things we do. Um, I know that my grandmother said that if you eat Vicks Vapor Rug with sugar on it, it's supposed to prevent you from getting colds. Um, Old grandma's tale. We didn't believe my dad that he was made to do this until one year at Thanksgiving. We said, Aunt Donna, did Grandma D ever say anything about eating Vicks rubs? And Aunt Donna said, yeah, with sugar. There we know. That might actually be harmful. There's a deceptive spirit telling you to do that. But nonetheless, there are things that circulate in our culture. Innocuous things, good things, harmful things. And I believe also that God can speak. God's wisdom, for true wisdom, comes from God and leads us back to God. God can speak through secular sources. Often, often secular sources are borrowing from God's wisdom. But maybe the biggest thing in all of this is we are paying attention to what source does this trace back to? What's the effect or direction that what is offered to us as good knowledge or a wise way to live, what source is it coming from and what direction is it pointing? And and do we find it coming back to the source of God's wisdom? Uh, Does it bring us into an understanding of Scripture? Now, this all circulates in our culture. And we all live in a culture. That just is. That's neither positive nor negative. Paul and Timothy lived in a culture, a time and place Jesus lived at a time and place in a culture. We live in a time and place in a culture. Now, in Timothy's day, when Paul is writing to him, one of the biggest effects on the culture was philosophy in a very formal sense. For us, philosophy is like that gen ed requirement that you have to take a class of if you're in college. 
Back then, a lot of culture was affected by who were the most dominant philosophers in the time. And so you might be an Epicurean who would tell you to, to follow the greatest pleasures in life, or a Stoic, or the list goes on and on. But the culture of certain cities were affected greatly by the philosophy, and it was explicitly and clearly taught. Some of it good, some of it bad. Some of it, the church had to find out, we think there is actually a way that God is speaking through this, but we want to make sure it's about Jesus and not just about ourselves. Some of them were harmful. Now for us, we don't have the same traveling philosopher culture that they did in in this day and age of the Bible. But our culture still gets shared. And in fact, even though maybe the philosophy behind it might be more hidden, more discreet, more implicit, we share very clearly what the thoughts and wisdom of our culture is. And we do this a lot through social media. So as I've been thinking about Lent, I grabbed a couple different um, memes off of Facebook. And maybe these don't qualify as memes. I might be wrong. There's people who will correct me tomorrow about that. Uh, but, but you see in the first one, this one has the most text, and so we'll read it to, I'll read it for you. Um, but uh, this, this was shared pretty widely, and I thought, this actually does relate to Lent in a certain way. The attitude of, that's just how I am, take it or leave it, is still a sign of immaturity. As an adult, it's your responsibility to figure out which of your traits are toxic and are negatively impactful towards other people and the ones you love, and to eventually learn how to fix them. At some point, we all got to start making ourselves better individuals. If you truly believe you don't have to change anything about yourself, even at the very least the worst in you, and that people just have to deal with it, then I'm sorry, you're still a child. This is actually a challenge to our what I would call an autonomous philosophy of this is how I am, I'm not changing, deal with it. It is a popular mindset in our culture today. This has an element of truth that it's challenging. We, we are supposed to grow. We are people who are supposed to mature over time. Now, imagine if we took this towards the specific direction of our relationship with Christ. If we believe that, that, that the relationship we have with Jesus is actually a relationship, then ask yourself, don't relationships grow and mature over time? This little wisdom nugget in our culture is saying, don't settle for never changing. Don't say, this is how I am, you've got to deal with the worst in me. No, it's our responsibility to grow and to change. But not just so that we become better individuals. Honestly, if the original author of this post was a better individual, they would have used better grammar and fewer run-on sentences. But our goal here is to grow closer to Christ. What if we told Jesus, you know what, I'm as close to you as I'm going to get, that's it. That doesn't sound like a relationship, that sounds like stagnation. The next one, fewer words, a little smaller. Consider how hard it is to change yourself and you'll understand what little chance you have in trying to change others. Think about the times where you've given good advice to someone, maybe even your own child, and they didn't listen. They didn't change their ways. They didn't heed your good words. This is just a similar call to wonder, what about changing yourself? Have you ever tried to change a habit? Because we are creatures of habit. Where you're sitting 
actually, although there's some people in different spots, which is just hilariously ironic for today. When Pastor Roger said, can you hear me? Okay, Bob can hear me. I'm like, Bob and Jan sit over there. But they're over here. So good job. You're all proving me wrong. But nonetheless, the point still stands. We are creatures of habit. And when we try to change our habits, we encounter resistance. And we have to train ourselves to overcome the resistance if we try to change ourselves. Lent is a time to observe our habits. And you know how long it takes psychologically, neurologically, to imprint a new habit? About 30, 40 days. Lent is the perfect amount of time to acquire a new habit, to try it on, to see can you devote yourself to forming a new habit. And it also reminds you, start with yourself. Don't try to change the world if you haven't first looked and tried to change yourself, which relates to the next quote that we have. If you don't heal what hurt you, you'll bleed on people who didn't cut you. Meaning, if you don't resolve some of the own issues in your life, face some of your own demons, grow in maturity, bring yourself to train yourself in godliness for what has hurt you over the time, you will inflict that pain on other people if you don't first attend to yourself. And this is some of the theme of 1 Timothy that Paul writes to Timothy as a young minister, as a young, as a young disciple of Jesus, to attend to your life and doctrine carefully. And the last one that I have, this one is actually directly from someone, a Greek philosopher, Hippocrates, which you might hear from the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. But Hippocrates is also quoted for saying, before you heal someone, ask him if he's willing to give up the things that made him sick. Before you heal someone, ask if he's willing to give up the things that made him sick. Now, I'm not a physician. I'm not going to get into the, the physical realm of this. And also, there's a, there is a gospel challenge to this. Jesus heals people and forgives their sins before he tells them anything else of what to do. Remember, Jesus said to the woman who was caught in adultery, he said first that she, her sins were forgiven and then told her to go and sin no more. So we can wrestle with this. But also, there is something here for us to consider in Lent. Are we willing to maybe give up some of the things that hold us back? It's like the example saying, you know, I prayed over this two or three times and nothing happened. Okay, that's one area in your life that you're praying over. Is there a different area in your life that you might be holding on to a little bit tighter? Is there something that you just can't imagine giving up for 40 days? Is it impossible to think about taking something on for 40 days because of our autonomy over time? Before we're made fully well, sometimes we have to attend to the things that are making us sick in the first place. Now, of this list, maybe some things get transmitted into old wives' tales, myths. Some things might lead us back to some gospel truths to hold on to. In all of this, we have to always watch the sources and culture to know, is it maybe speaking a wise word, but it's incomplete? Does it bring us back to Jesus? And if it can't, then we're to be cautious. But Lent, in fact, the Christian life of discipleship, of following Jesus, in all of these quotes, they are towards the individual. But for us, it's always a different direction. It's always a question of not, not just what we gain for ourselves, though we might gain better relationships. We might be 
healthier, happier people for following Jesus in fullness and in discipline. But that's, not, that's the side effect, not the primary directive. It is growing closer to Christ. As, as it is said in verse 8, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Godliness has value for all things. So train yourself in that which gives the most value in all areas of life. As if to say, don't attend to those small things, though they might be important. Don't attend to the things that are on the edge, on the periphery, and miss the big picture that is front and center, which is growing closer to Jesus. Lent is set aside as this season for us to try on something that can help us to, to, to reach in as much as anything else, to wrestle well, not just to make ourselves better people, but to make ourselves more faithful disciples to Christ. The wisdom of our culture does challenge us, but to make sure that it's for the right goal, the way that, that, that Paul writes to Timothy, to pursue godliness. Because make no mistakes, friends, whoever said cleanliness is next to godliness, that was just someone with OCD who wanted to prove their point. What is next to godliness is holiness. Holiness is not achieved by our own merit. We, we don't um, forgive our own sins. We have to receive forgiveness from God. Our holiness is when we are made right with Christ. We say, Lord, all I have, all that I am, belongs to you. Forgive me, Jesus. And we confess with our lips and believe in our hearts that Jesus was the Son of God and that God raised him from the dead. That's our source of holiness, is Christ. But to live into that version of holiness is a lifelong discipleship of maturity, of growth. And that the sins that exist in our lives, if we've been forgiven by Christ, the sins in our lives are not salvation issues, but they are maturity issues. Maybe the one habit that just we can't quite kick or the fact that we know we should pray but we don't. The sin in our life when we've been forgiven by Christ is a maturity issue. Are we growing in maturity or have we said, hey big guy upstairs, this is as close as I'm going to get to you. Is that the best that we can do? Is that the best that we are called to? Or is there greater growth? Is there training as Paul uses the analogy of physical training, because it's good, using, using our bodies well to their full potential. But to train well in godliness is to say, I'm going to continue to grow into this maturity. Now, I should have brought it with, I have a yellow shirt from a tulip run, and many of your names are on the back. Karen Campeis, Mel Russ, Chris and Allison Major, uh, Jim Hooksima, Lizzie Hooksima, most of those people run faster than me. Most of those people train a lot more than I do. And I know that every tulip run that I've ever run, my sister Amanda has come up. And I really haven't had a personal goal for myself. I've just had to make sure that I'm fast enough to beat my sister. That's all I care about. But once again, that brings us back to, is our matter of holiness and our maturity in Christ, do we let ourselves off the hook by saying, I'm doing better than them, or I'll never be as good as them, so I won't try. If we remove the comparisons 
and simply seek Christ in fullness, training in godliness the way, the way Scripture points out to us, the way Timothy impacts, is impacted by Paul to continue to grow in our maturity, to, to fix ourselves upon the sound teaching that we have received from Scripture, from people that we have trusted who have taught us well. When we do this, it's not a matter of comparison of who we're going to beat or who we'll never be as good as, but it is to set our personal best of what does the best measure of faithfulness look like for us, for me. Don't try to beat someone else. Try to grow closer to Christ on your own. And do that first before you try to tell others that they need to. Don't get distracted by the small things and miss what's front and center. And just to be clear, the, the, the measure of godliness here, as, as Paul writes, godliness has value for all things, um, is not that we grow to be more like God, that we will become omniscient, all-knowing, or all-powerful. This was the Genesis 3 lie that Adam and Eve bought into, that they would be like God in certain ways, that, that God alone is God. But our version of godliness, just as our version of holiness comes from Christ, the version of godliness that we pursue is to be more like Jesus. Jesus, who is fully God, fully human, showed us the example, the perfect template, the archetype of what it would look like to live our lives fully for God. And so when we seek out godliness, we are seeking to be more like Christ to live the way Jesus lived, to love the way Jesus loved, to love the people that Jesus loved. To do all of this is to be more like Christ. And that means maybe some parts of us have to die away. Some of us, some of our traits have to fade away to make room for a bigger and fuller and healthier version of what God intends for us. And then we come back to verse 6, that we can do these things to be a good minister or servant or follower of Christ Jesus. When we've, made, when we've reached in and made sure to make room for Jesus. And we do this through maybe taking on a practice, setting a timer to pray for five minutes a day, reading one chapter of our Bible a day. Maybe we do a traditional fast of some kind and to remind that, that we don't abstain from food because food is bad. This is good news. Verse 4, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Maybe just giving thanks to God every time we have a bite to eat. Whether it be the meal that we sit down for the drive through meal that we get on our way to the next appointment, or even just the candy bar from a gas station that we got in between things. Thank you, God, for good food. But that we don't abstain from food because food is bad. But if we fast, we fast for particular food or certain drinks as a spiritual discipline. As a way of saying, God is more important to me than X, Y, or Z. And maybe this will create something that challenges us. Maybe some resistance comes up because if we're trying to change ourselves and our habits, there will be resistance. And even positive change will build resistance. Because anyone who's ever trained for any physical event, as Paul uses that analogy in 1 Timothy 4, knows that you don't get faster or stronger by doing what you can already do easily. 
There has to be resistance. Our muscles don't grow unless there are small tears when we exert ourselves, that when they heal together, they are stronger. Even the positive changes we make will have some resistance. Maybe it evokes some anxiety. But we don't grow more knowledgeable about the Bible without reading it. We don't grow into a fuller life of prayer without setting aside time to pray. We don't become an encouraging presence or someone who gives wise counsel if we don't practice and and equip ourselves by knowing wise and encouraging words and then intentionally practice offering encouragement. We don't become a more emotionally stable person or a more emotionally healthy person by saying, I am who I am, take it or leave it. But we do so by reaching in. That we labor and strive, as verse 10 puts it, that we labor and strive because we've put our hope not in ourselves, not in the best picture of self-improvement. We labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially those who believe. Some of our change will have loss. Some of that loss will have some grief. But we labor and strive to be more like Jesus because we put our hope in the living God and that we trust that what God has in store for us is the best and the fullest. And even if it's not the most fun for us, it will be the most beneficial to the world and will be most aligned with Christ's kingdom purposes. God who is the savior of all people and especially to those who believe. That's an interesting statement. Essentially to mean that we recognize that God is sovereign over all people, whether they recognize him or not. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world for all people, whether they recognize him as savior or not. But, it, but if our hope is to share hope, if our hope is to share hope, to show people that living for Jesus all in with radical obedience is the best way to live, that has to start with our own convic- commitment, conviction, and desire to live all in with radical obedience for Jesus as well. It's worth laboring and striving for. And it's worth trying that on in the season of Lent to figure out what would be not so hard that we'll abandon it at first, at first sign of struggle, but what would turn up the heat just a little bit? What's the one next step closer that you can make in a relationship growth and maturity with Christ and to see what the side effects of that just might be. Friends, we won't be deceived. We won't get distracted by silly myths and flushing ice cubes down toilets if our goal is to grow to be more like Jesus. Lent's a-coming. What do you want to labor and strive towards? during those 40 days leading up to the celebration of the resurrection, the celebration of Easter, the gratitude for all the hope that we have, for all of our hope is in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.